All right, we will be in Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to go through all of 24, and then the first 11 verses of 25. Uh, and I'm going to warn you now, chapter 24 is the longest section of narrative in Genesis, so we're in for a long one this morning, people, so buckle up. Uh, but I want to begin by just telling you a, a story about myself. I, I was saved uh, during the year of grade nine in my life. I I've told many of you this story, but I, I ended up being tricked into volunteering at a Christian camp going into grade nine, the summer just before grade nine, and, and God grabbed a hold of my life through the work of, of the youth group that was involved in that church and that camp and, and the people that were there. And so the summer after grade nine, I ended up working at that same camp. And the, the program director and the actual director of the camp, they were both named Adam. And they decided as part of their program to, to create unity among the staff, they came up with this idea to have these shirts made that said the A-team on it, which is definitely copyright infringement, but we won't talk about that part. But they had these shirts, the A-team, and, and every week there'd be one or two people who were on staff who would win the A-team shirt of the week, the counselor of the week award. And uh, I'm going to tell you about the week I won it. The first thing you need to know is the week I actually won, I wasn't on staff, I was just volunteering. And I've thought many times since, since then how bad a counselor I have to be that I won my t-shirt the week I wasn't even working. Um, but this is, this is the event that really pushed it over for me. Adam told me this later. Um, we, we were doing an event where we bought a bunch of cardboard boxes and each group of campers were going to create their own car somebody in their group was going to put this cardboard car on themselves and then run through an obstacle course. And what happens when you let some early 20-year-old men plan camp is the best way to show kids how to run an obstacle course is to rent a golf cart for the day, bring it in, use it for 10 minutes to show the kids what to do, but spend the rest of the day racing around the church property, seeing who can go the fastest. A huge waste of money. It might be part of the reason why a few years later this camp was shut down due to budget reasons, but we don't need to talk about that. But out of all of that, we used the cart for one more important thing that day. At the end of the obstacle course, everybody destroyed their cardboard cards, and we gathered all the garbage into bags. We brought the golf cart down this big hill on the church property, and it was my job as the volunteer to hold all of the bags of garbage in the back of the golf cart as they drove up the hill. And what I realized about halfway up the hill was this was a lot of garbage, and so I'm trying to hold on to the garbage and trying to hold on to the golf cart so I just don't fall off the back, but I couldn't hold on to everything. I let go of the garbage bags, I let go of the golf cart, and I just start tumbling down the hill, and Adam, as he's driving the golf cart, looks back and just watches me roll down the hill the whole way, and he thought that was so incredibly funny that I could win Counselor of the Year, or of the Week Award. Um, and so not only did I win it on my week off, it was a pity win as well. But as I was as going through this passage today, that's, that's how I felt as I was getting ready for it, that this is such a big passage with so many details that it's hard to hold on to everything without letting go of the main point. And so what I want to do is I want to point us to look through all of the details 
everything that is happening in this passage and to just notice God at work in this story. We need to see God behind the details, orchestrating everything. The purpose of this passage is that God's promises never die. What we are going to see here is that God is continuing his covenant blessings, his covenant relationships from Abraham to Isaac as he continues his work of redemption that he has started. And so all I want us to do today is see how great God is, how incredible it is that he fulfills his promises, that his promises never die, and to see how we respond to a God like that. So let's, let's pray as we dive into the passage. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that, that we can know that you are at work and that you are completing what you have started. And we pray today as we read through your word that you would guide us to understand who you are and make us aware of the work that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Genesis chapter 24. I'm going to, there's not a lot of scripture on the slides today. In fact, there's not really any. I don't think there's any at all because I want you in your Bibles because we're going to be moving around a little bit and I want you guys to kind of have your Bibles ready. So make sure you have them open to 24 or on your phones, have them ready uh, and, and going on chapter 24 as well. But we begin this, this section and, and it says, Abraham was now very old. This is a nice way of saying Abraham is nearing the end of his life. His time is coming up. He doesn't have a lot of time left. And now we're going to see, with the end of his life, what is important to Abraham? What is he going to do? It's important for us to note that Sarah, at this point, she's already passed on. And here's Abraham, and he was very old. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. God has been true to all of his promises. He's been true to the blessings that he has said he would give Abraham and now what is Abraham going to do? He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me from this, uh, to this land, shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. So here we are, the end of Abraham's life, and what is important to him? He gets his best servant, the one he trusts the most, and he gives him the task of finding a wife for his son, Isaac. But I want us to note, this is much more important than just an old man wanting to see his son married. This isn't the sultan in Aladdin needing to find a, a husband for Jasmine because the culture says so. This isn't matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. This is about something so much bigger than that. See, God's promises to Abraham 
are about how God is going to use Abraham and his family to bless the other nations. But at this point in Abraham's life, Isaac is not married, Isaac does not have a son, and therefore the promises of God will not continue in the situation that they are in now. This isn't about Abraham wanting to see his son married. This is about Abraham being concerned over the covenant promise of God. And what we're going to see as we go through this section is that the first thing we need to learn about responding to a God whose promises never fail is we need to trust him. And we see that through Abraham here. Look at the words of Nahum M. Sarna, a Jewish scholar. He writes, As long as Isaac is unmarried, the divine promise of posterity remains unfulfilled. And so Abraham calls his most trusted servant and says, You are going to swear to me that you're going to find Isaac a wife. And you might say, how does this show the trust that Abraham has? How do we see Abraham's trust in this point? I want you to look at the details and see the covenant thought behind it. Look at the details and what Abraham says to his servant. You're to find my son a wife, but she must not be a Canaanite woman. You have to go back to my homeland to get her. Why? Isaac is from the family that's going to inherit the promised land. He is not to marry somebody who's already in that land. In fact, the Canaanites have been excluded from God's covenant promise. If Isaac were to marry somebody from Canaan, it wouldn't be Isaac inheriting the land. It wouldn't be God giving the land to Isaac. It would be Isaac forming a treaty with the Canaanites and bringing their families together to live in the promised land. And Abraham says, no, you need to get my son a wife from my home because God is giving us this land. He's giving it to us, and there will be no sense, no doubt that there is anything else going on here. And then look at his response to the servant's faith. What if she doesn't want to come back? And Abraham gives the servant an out, not because he thinks that God isn't going to follow through here, but he gives it just so the servant feels at ease. But did you notice what he says? He says, uh, the God who has sent me here, the God who has given this land to me and my ancestors or in my, and my, my future generations, he will send his angel before you. That's a way of saying God will make this happen. I have no doubt. And then the last thing I want you to notice we actually just read the last words of Abraham in Scripture. The last words that we have of Abraham, and they are this. Only do not take my son back there. Isaac doesn't return back there. You see, this covenant relationship is based on the fact that God called Abraham out of that land and Abraham out of faith followed and so Isaac going back there to find a wife is a reversal of that faith that Abraham has. And so Abraham says, you cannot take my son back there because there is no doubt that this is our home now, that we have followed God and Isaac is to stay here. This isn't just about finding a wife. This is about making sure that the way Isaac's wife is found is anchored in the trust of what God is doing. And I want you to notice how much Abraham has changed. This is a man 
who has taken the easy, uh, easy way out multiple times in his life. This is a man who lied twice about Sarah, his wife, being his sister because he was afraid that God couldn't protect him. This is a man who slept with Hagar because he couldn't wait for God to fulfill his promises. And here's Abraham concerned fully in making sure the trust of the Lord is shown. There are no easy way outs here. It's all about obedience to what Abraham has, has been called to. It's about trusting that God is going to do everything the way God said he would. It's about trusting that God's promises never die. And trust is an important thing. George Schultz was a former U.S. Secretary of Labor, a former Treasury of State, uh, Director of the Office of Management and Budget in the U.S., and, and he did a lot of things throughout his life. He was involved in the Hoover Institute. And a few days before he turned 100, and I don't have this quote up here, a few days before he turned 100, he, he wrote an article for the Washington Post reflecting on his life. This is how that article begins. December 13th marks my turning 100 years young. I've learned, that, I've learned much over that time, but looking back, I'm struck that there is one lesson I learned early and relearned over and over. Trust is the coin of the realm. When trust was in the room, whatever room that was, the family room, the school room, the locker room, the office room, the government room, or the military room, good things happened. When trust was not in the room, good things did not happen. Doesn't that summarize Abraham's life? When Abraham trusted God, incredible things happened. God provided a lamb instead of Isaac. God provided a son to Sarah, even though it was laughable to think about. And all of the times where Abraham's trust lacked is when things would fall apart. It was in the trust that Abraham had of what God was doing where he got to experience the glory of God, the God who was in control, orchestrating everything. And we need to learn to trust like Abraham. And, and how do we do it? Well, I think what we need to see is Abraham learned to trust like this through his relationship with God, through experiencing all of these different things that God had for him, through seeing God fulfill his promises over and over again. There isn't an easy answer here. It was through the relationship that Abraham had with God. And so if we want to learn how to trust God, how to respond to his, his promises in faith, we need to start working on our relationships with God. We need to spend more time with him, more time learning about who he is in, in his word, more time worshiping and praising him together. It needs to become the priority of what we're doing is to know God more deeply, to let our love for God grow and to respond to him through trust as we experience the goodness that he has for us. And so the first way that we respond to a God whose promises never die is we trust him. The second thing we're going to see here is, is we need to respond to God by praising God for his work. What we're going to see here is God just doing incredible things. God carrying on his promises, ensuring that his covenant doesn't end. We must praise God for his work. We're going to continue here from verse 10. 
Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was, out, it was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before we continue, I just want to pause here for a moment. What we see here is the first time anybody comes to a critical moment and prays to God for guidance. It's the first time this happens in Scripture. And it's an unnamed servant. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't it show us how God is willing to use anyone? He's willing to use Abraham. He's willing to use Noah. He's willing to use this unnamed servant to do his work, to, to follow him, to take the faithfulness of this unnamed person. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we're broken or if we're important or not. God is willing to use your faithfulness to do the work that he has in store. Let's continue, though. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly she lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she came quickly, emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a uh, becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me there is room in your father's house for us to spend the night. She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, born to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshipped the Lord saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on, this, on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. Immediately, when the servant realized that God is at work here, he bows down and he praises. As soon as he realizes that God is orchestrating something here, that God is at work, that God is fulfilling his promises, he gives glory to God. He doesn't take credit for himself. He doesn't say, look how great I am. I found her. First girl I found, she fits the description. No, praise God. God is at work here. That's his first reaction. But he does it again. What you find here, and we're going to kind of skim over this. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the narrative details here. Uh, Rebecca runs home to her family to tell them what's happened. 
Laban, her brother, comes out and invites uh, the servant in for dinner to spend the night. But before the servant does anything, before he sits down and rests, he realizes he's on a mission for God, and he decides he has to tell them everything. He sits down with this family and tells them about the glory of God, how God had called Abraham out, how God had blessed Abraham in all of these ways. And then he tells the people, and you read this, it's almost a repetition of what happens. He tells the family about how he'd taken this oath from Abraham to find a wife for his son Isaac. He talks about how he got to the well, how he prayed to God, and how everything he prayed for happened. He tells the family about how he worshipped. And then he says, So, will she be the wife of Isaac? And their response, in verse 50, Laban and Bethuel, the, the family of Rebekah. They say, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebekah. Take her and go and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. He worshiped. He sees what God is doing and he worships. And what's incredible about this is that God works in such ordinary ways. Did you, do you remember how, how Abraham said, God will send his angel before you? There's no mention of the angel here. It doesn't become apparent to the servant what's happening. He prays these things and they happen, but he's still unsure. I mean, it's still vague. There's this woman there. How do I know this is actually the woman? How do I know God is answering my prayers? But he starts to piece it together as God is at work behind the scenes and orchestrating. And, and did you notice how even before the servant was finished praying, Rebecca is there. God isn't responding to the servant's prayer. He's using the servant's prayer to bring him on the same page as God. God is at work behind everything that is happening here, making sure he chooses the wife for Isaac who's going to carry on the blessing that's coming to the generations after Abraham. Alan P. Ross writes about this. The story records no word from God, no miracle, no cultic contact, and no prophetic oracle. It does not even restate the Abrahamic covenant. But this is what it does do. It reports the hidden causality of God, sovereignly working through the circumstances of those who are acting in faith. What's incredible here is that this servant recognizes all of the ways that God is at work, and he praises him for it. We need to do that too. We need to understand that God is always at work, and so we, as God's people, must always be at praise. We must be sure to give God credit for everything that he is doing, worship him for the big ways that he is at work, and praise him for the little things that he's doing day to day as he continues his work to redeem people to himself and restore the world. On my way here, I was feeling incredibly nervous, as I always am before I preach, and I was just worshiping. I put on some worship music as I come in, and, and as I praise God, as I start to reflect on who he is and, and his promises, that, that those nerves start to go away. And probably more often than not, I would just walk from the car and come here and, and feel a little bit better. 
but not wanting to be a hypocrite today, I stopped and just said, thank you, Jesus. Just a little thing. I felt a little bit better. Thank you, Jesus. That's the kind of thing that the servant does here. That's how we must respond to a God whose promises never die. We must praise him for all of the work that he is doing, and we must be aware of the work that he is doing. But for the sake of time, we'll keep going here. We're going to see the the final thing I want to point out here as, as it comes to responding to God is that we see that we have to trust him, we have to praise him, and lastly, what we see today is we have to follow God. We must follow God. What happens next is, is feeling the success that God has given him. The servant goes to bed for the night. And when he wakes up, he says, okay, let's get Rebecca and let's go. And the family says, whoa, whoa, not so fast. Let's let her stay here for a little while. And the servant says, no, no, God's given me success. Let me go. And they say, okay, Let's bring out Rebecca. She'll be the one who decides. She'll be the one who says whether or not she's going. And in verse 58, it says, So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Now, I want you to notice something here. It's hard to see at first, but hopefully we can draw this out. Rebecca is being called by God to leave her country to leave her family, and to leave her father's household. And she says, I will go. Does it remind you of anyone here? If not yet, check out this. As she goes, her family, they they say a blessing over her, and this is the blessing that they give. Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Are you reminded of anyone yet? It's, it's an echo of the blessings that have been given to Abraham. Just last week we talked about Genesis 22 and how after Abraham's showing of his faith, God blesses him and he also promises him that his offspring will possess the cities of their enemies. What we're seeing here is, is Rebecca, I almost said Sarah, Rebecca is being brought into the covenant family. She's being brought into the chosen people of God. That's what we're supposed to see here. She, like Abraham, is, is moving in faith. She, like Abraham, is, is called to come and enter into this covenant relationship. Gordon J. Wenham writes this. This is what teaches us what we need to know here. It is through Rebecca that the promise of a multitude of descendants for Abraham will begin to be realized. I will go. And so she goes. She goes with the servant. They travel by camel. And in verse 62, this is what we see. Now Isaac had come from Bir Lahai, Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So he took her veil and co- she took her veil and covered herself. She, she marked herself as, as Isaac's bride. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. 
She followed, she obeyed, she went. As we respond to a God who keeps his promises, a God who is in control of everything, our response must be, I will go. I will do what you ask me to. And I, for one, am, am so thankful for the amount of people in my life who were willing to go where God called them to, who were willing to serve in the ways that God asked them to. I, I think of those two Adams that I talked about earlier at that camp and, and the, the role they played in, in me coming to know Christ and how their story was they were at a barbecue just before summer started, heard about this camp, and were like, let's do it. Let's serve. They were last-minute additions to that camp. And they just felt compelled to give up their summer and, and, and go and serve the Lord. And, and they made a huge difference in my life. I think of all the families who, who drove me to youth group, who drove me to church, who welcomed me into their homes. All of my friends who, who taught me what it meant to, to, serve, to, to serve the Lord and follow him. All of the people who said to God, I will go, who God used to make a difference in my life. And I know used to make a difference in other people's lives. And I'm so thankful for them and for what God did through them. And that's what I want to be. I want to be somebody who will say, I will go. I will do my part, whatever God asks me to, in his work to bring people to him, in his work of drawing the world back to himself. And so my question is, what are we doing? What are we doing to follow God? What are we doing to be a part of God's work to redeem his people? Who are we sharing God's love with? Who are we helping to understand who God is who are we helping to follow God, to serve God together? What are we doing? If Rebecca and Abraham can leave their home and go follow God in some strange land, surely we can sit down with somebody once a month and have a coffee or serve in a ministry. We need to figure out how God is calling us to go, how God is calling us to serve him, and we respond to him by following him. I'm going to invite the team back up as we close, but I want to take a, a, a few minutes here and just dwell on the goodness of God as we come to a close. Maybe you're unconvinced that, that this whole story about Isaac's marriage is actually just about God continuing his covenant promises. So let me draw out a couple details as we see God at work here as we close this passage today. We'll see that God's promises never die. The first thing I want you to see is that when the servant and Rebecca come home, and Rebecca asks, who is that? The servant, for the first time, says, he is my master. Up until this point, it's always Abraham is my master. Now it's Isaac. Isaac is my master. And then notice, Rebecca goes into Sarah's tent. She takes the role of Sarah. They're married, and Isaac feels comforted about his mother's death. Because Rebecca has walked into the role of the matriarch of the family. She has stepped into the role that Sarah has left behind. She has, through this, been chosen by God to become the new Sarah as God continues the work that he's doing through his people. And then as we get to verse, uh, chapter 25, what we see is the account of Abraham's death. And there's just a couple things I'm going to point out here. The first is that Abraham is generous to all of his sons while he's still alive. But when Abraham dies, Isaac gets everything. Isaac inherits the position that Abraham had. 
And this, this is incredible. Verse 11 of chapter 25. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roi. That's the first time God blesses Isaac. The torch has been passed at this point. Abraham has died, but God's promise hasn't. He has ensured that everything he said will happen is going to happen by finding Rebekah for Isaac. This story that we read today, this account of what God has done, is all about God staying true to his covenant promises and making sure the redeeming work that he has started continues by his work and the work of some people who are faithful in following what he's done. God's promises never die. This is incredible because the story doesn't end with Isaac, it continues. If you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read the genealogy of Jesus, the second name in the genealogy of Jesus is, is Isaac. Without Isaac having a family, the, the genealogy of Jesus stops there, but God does not let that happen. It's through Isaac and, and his family and, and, and the continuation of the covenant through Isaac and Rebekah that we get to the Savior. That God doesn't just continue his covenant promises for a few generations, he carries it through to completion. God never forgets his promises he carries them through and he leads us to the savior who even when he dies God's promises never die because that death is just a step in the restoration process that whoever believes whoever trusts in God whoever praises God's name whoever follows him will not die but have eternal life because Christ died for us and rose again God's promises never die we serve and worship a great God Let's trust him, let's praise him, and let's follow him. Let's pray today. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are in control of everything, that your work has begun, it is still going, and it will be completed, God. We await that day where we will see your glory. We thank you for the salvation you've given us. We thank you that your promises never die. We thank you for your love and your sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.